Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Working, where no one can see him or hear him well behind the scenes and safely. Coming up on today's show, we'll be joined by Nikki Baird. She is the VP of Strategy at Aptos. Nikki joined the podcast about, oh, a year and 10 months ago. She joined us then to discuss the changing role of brick and mortar in the retail landscape as the pandemic was just beginning. But she'll rejoin the program to kind of update us on where brick and mortar's role now falls in terms of retail through her scope of vision at Aptos. Aptos is a company that counsels a great number of retailers out there. In news, we'll talk about Ulta as they had a swimmingly fantastic earnings call. And in our Looking Ahead segment, we'll talk about specialty retailer REI and some new benefits they are rolling out to REI members. Our podcast this week is brought to you by Hashtag Paid. We'll discuss them a little further on in the show. And a quick reminder that you can always access us on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. And likewise, if you see or hear a retail story that you think we should know about, go ahead, hit us up at Retail Podcast on either one of those mediums. Well, let's get into our news segment as Ulta Beauty continues a hot retail earnings streak over the past couple of weeks. We talked about it a little bit last week with a few different retailers, but Positivity for this call for Ulta went far beyond just the bottom line numbers. Ulta was one of several non-essential businesses, of course, that ran into difficulty two years ago during the first days of the pandemic as municipalities, states, forced closures of Ulta stores. Signs of consumers really turning back to beauty and self-care products started in last year's fourth quarter, and their sales numbers showed that Ulta is very much back to its dominant pre-pandemic ways. Any way you slice it, the numbers for their fiscal 2021 fourth quarter, which ended, by the way, January 29th, 2022, those numbers were stellar. Comps came in up 21.4% over last year when they had backtracked slightly, of course, in 2020 due to pandemic effects. On a two-year stack basis over the fourth quarter of 2019, their comps were up a whopping 16.6%. And this is for a retailer that was widely seen already as a force in retail before the pandemic. When you break down the comps for them for this quarter, transactions were up 10.4%. Ticket was up 9.9% on average, and that's driven both by higher selling prices and more units per transaction, which are great signs there as customers opt to trade up a little bit more, even despite minor inflationary impacts. We'll talk about those here in a second. They ended the 2021 fiscal year, did Ulta, with comps up 20% on a two-year stack basis over 2019 for the full year. Again, just crazy numbers there signaling both internal success but also pent-up demand left over from 2020. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about them on this episode of the podcast is we really haven't addressed what a great job Ulta is doing to this point during the past fiscal year. By the way, their comps do include e-commerce numbers. In particular, though, they saw a 20% leap in buy online pickup in store. That now accounts for 17% of e-commerce sales, increases buy online pickup in store penetration as a percentage of e-commerce sales by about 200 basis points. Regarding individual product categories where they saw success, fragrance, bath, 
hair care, and skin care were all up double digits over last year's Q4. And you notice something pretty common about those categories. We're talking about self-care categories there, especially with bath, hair care, and skin care. Holiday and seasonal fragrance lines were also said to be up, which is pretty reasonable considering the relative lack of traffic in 2020 versus what they saw in 2021. Makeup, however, did go the other direction. They were facing a little bit of headwind there and sequential challenges as well versus the third quarter. Particularly, this pressure was felt in their prestige lines, so their higher-end lines. Mass makeup categories were still up on a two-year stack, but it seems like fewer people purchasing the beauty products versus those self-care products if you were to divide them out in that way for Ulta. Now, despite SG&A being up as a percentage, selling general and administrative expenses, of course, being up as a percentage of sales in quarter four versus quarter four of 2019 by about 150 basis points, they still came in, Ulta did, with operating income 13.8% of sales. A pretty good number for any retailer, but particularly for Ulta, this is up from 10.2% in last year's fourth quarter and 12.5% in 2019's fourth quarter. So really almost as profitable as they've ever been. Largely this past year, it was a result of their gross profit numbers increasing up to 37.6% of sales in the fourth quarter versus right around the 35% mark in both 2020 and 2019. They benefited from a channel shift back to brick and mortar as well. E-commerce sales penetration was actually down 600 basis points from last year. And for some retailers, I know this might be cause for concern, but for Ulta, it was cause for celebration because it allowed them to save on shipping and fulfillment expenses and boosted that bottom line. Additionally, another help to that bottom line, they cut back on promotional activity as many retailers have done. For the full year, their gross profit was 39% of sales, operating income a whopping 15% of sales, really speaking to how well they were doing in those first three quarters. Improvements on both the sales and the margin front led to the earnings beat we alluded to at the start of the story, $5.41 per share versus $4.61 expected by analysts that would come out to a 17.4% beat. Ulta saw a small benefit from reduced pre-opening costs for new locations versus two years ago. A couple of years ago, they were expanding pretty significantly. You're looking at 80 store openings in 2019, but still, although they've slowed a little bit, not that much. They opened six locations in the quarter, 44 net new locations for Ulta during the year. Now, 2020, those numbers were down to just 10 for the entire year. As I mentioned, 2019, they were up to 80. So Ulta did save a little bit on those pre-opening expenses versus two years ago. And adding to the costs here in terms of that capex were seven relocations during the course of the year and nine remodels. They look to scale that up in the next year. And speaking of the next year, their outlook for 2022 is underpinned by the idea, according to CEO Dave Kimball, that customers will, and I quote, become more resilient to COVID surges. This is interesting phrasing because it invokes both resilience in terms of immunity for those customers, particularly potentially those vaccinated customers or the customers that have already had COVID, but also in terms of a desire among customers to continue frequenting retailers and getting out of the house despite future potential COVID surges. 
And overall for Ulta, this doesn't just mean frequenting their retail stores, but also participating in more social activities. Leadership mentioned that they're really counting on this to kind of drive some of those sales post-COVID or at least whatever the 2022 rendition of COVID happens to look like. And of course, when you look at the last two years for Ulta, they were able to capitalize on new self-care habits that customers undertook during the pandemic. They are expecting those routines to continue post-COVID. Essentially, the hope here from Ulta's leadership is for the best of both worlds. Self-care sales maintain while beauty sales increase. So people continue the self-care they started during the pandemic, but also they're getting out more. They're more social, so they're more concerned about the beauty side of things as well. We mentioned the struggles makeup had during the past quarter. That's certainly one such category they see bouncing back in the next year as exposure to social situations and in-person work situations theoretically increases as many businesses, many local governments, in fact, are calling for people, begging businesses almost, to return to the office throughout the United States. Generally, as far as Ulta's comps, they do see comps increasing yet again in fiscal 2022. They predict it'll be up 3 to 4% will comp sales for the full year. This may be more difficult, by the way, in the second quarter as they are lapping a very good second quarter of 2021. But the other three quarters, the first, third, and the fourth, should comp out positively in theory. And this should be enough to outpace inflation, at least according to their leadership. Their leadership said they haven't seen large price jumps or significant MSRP increases of late. Maybe smaller increases, but not like what you've seen in grocery. They'll continue to monitor that going forward. But in terms of MSRP increases, that's really where you're kind of looking at some of those prestige lines where the prices ultimately set by those lines before Ulta gets it in-house. So you're limited in terms of price competition there. You kind of have to adhere to a certain percentage, at least, of that MSRP. So not a whole lot seen on the inflationary front, at least so far for Ulta. That might be good news, ultimately, for the American consumer. They plan on once again ramping up new store openings a little bit. 50 planned overall for 2022. That's net new store openings. And perhaps bigger news, they're going to double the remodel or relocation program from what we saw in 2021. They plan 35 overall remodels or relocations. But they do project an operating margin fall down to about 137 to 14%. So similar margins to what they saw in 2021's fourth quarter, but maybe not the entire year where they came in at that 15% mark that really was quite seller. Still 137 to 14%, very strong operating income numbers for Ulta. Another thing they mentioned is something that Nikki Baird will actually touch on during our interview segment, which is social selling. During the fourth quarter, they were able to ramp up their live streaming programs and social selling endeavors. It's kind of interesting because they were one of the first retailers to jump on the influencer marketing bandwagon. But it seems like over the past couple of years, especially, Ulta has begun to take a bit more of this in-house student, perhaps greater control there. One quick note to end this news story is their partnership with Target. They feel like there's been substantial and tangible progress in this partnership to date, over 1 million people have linked their Ultimate Rewards Program, which is Ulta's rewards program, 
to their target circle accounts and also maybe more importantly for those that are using target as an entry to ultimate rewards maybe signing up to ultimate rewards because of their access through target they're behaving similarly in terms of increased spend and spend frequency when compared to existing ultimate rewards members basically these rewards members coming in through target are just as valuable as ulta's native ultimate rewards members which i think is very important to note and so that leads us to the outlook for 2022. A main focus for Ulta is driving awareness for target customers and continuing to funnel new members through their target outlets and that store within a store partnership. So overall, a great past year for Ulta. They're projecting a pretty decent year for fiscal 2022. Part of that is because they project beauty to maybe pick back up. And of course, it goes without saying that should another pandemic wave hit, should people go back to staying at home more frequently, maybe they won't see those planned increases on the beauty side of things. But generally speaking, it seems like where Ulta is sitting right now, heading into the next fiscal year, is a really positive place. And the table was set almost entirely by that fantastic 2021 they're coming out of. Well, coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Nikki Baird, once again, the VP of strategy at Aptos. Aptos works with a number of retailers, and so Nikki has a very unique perspective on what's going on in the aggregate in terms of retail. She'll talk about the current role of brick and mortar in the retail landscape and what some retailers are doing going into this next year to try and get ahead of the game a little bit. touched on it briefly in that first segment, but realistically, influencer marketing, something that a few retailers have used, but some marketing teams are hesitant to use it. And for good reason, a lot of times it's not measurable. Some people don't like dealing with the influencers. Sometimes it's inconsistent. And our partner for today's podcast understands that hashtag paid is the number one rated influencer marketing platform on G2 crowd because they understand it's oftentimes difficult for retailers and other businesses to work with influencers. Hashtag paid's goal is to build your business's online reputation, help your business sell products, and grow your email list. And they don't do it with influencers. They only use creators. So I'm talking about content creators here. And hashtag paid makes it easy for you to test this particular marketing channel. You can do a number of things, including picking from a short list of curated creators for you. You can pick your audience and objectives. And the best part is you can watch those creators put everything in motion and they'll make your marketing team look like absolute geniuses. They promise that you won't have to haggle with influencers regarding compensation. You won't be left in the dark on performance and you won't have to spend hours searching for the right influencers because, again, they're curating these lists of content creators. And perhaps the best part is Hashtag Paid's platform starts at $499. And second best part, our podcast listeners get $500 of free working spend on their first campaign. Go to go.hashtagpaid.com slash retail to take advantage of this offer. That's go.hashtagpaid.com slash retail to receive $500 off your first campaign. 
And if you aren't in a position to write down that URL, we'll have it in the show notes for you. Once again, check out go.hashtagpay.com slash retail. In the early days of the pandemic, many wondered how the pandemic would adjust or alter retailers' outlook on the brick-and-mortar store. Would many locations be rendered obsolete, perhaps, as customers flocked online? Or would the stores serve a necessary role in their communities, albeit maybe an adjusted role from pre-pandemic? And more importantly, would the retailers with a significant brick-and-mortar presence change their approach? Well, back in June of 2020, we were joined by Nikki Baird, the VP of Strategy for Aptos, to talk about these things. And in the nearly two years since, some changes on the brick-and-mortar front have been clarified. But at the same time, there's a lot to be discussed, so we wanted to circle back to see how things have progressed since then. And so we welcome Nikki back to the show today. Nikki, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So could you refresh our listeners on what Aptos does as a company and then also about your role there? Yeah, so Aptos is an enterprise solution provider that's focused entirely on the retail industry. We enable all the parts of retail technology that are differentiating and hard in the retail industry, and I am the vice president of strategy. I look after the future and interpret that future for impact on our customers and impact on our products. All right, so all that being said, obviously you get a very close up view of what some retailers and the retailer industry as a whole has been doing since the start of the pandemic. What are some of the key things you've noted, maybe in the last year or so as far as main developments in retail overall that really stick out to you as kind of main points from the last 365 days? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, consumer spending has been pretty strong, actually, unexpectedly so. And I think a lot of the stimulus and government work to support consumers during the pandemic really helped a lot. It exacerbated, I think is probably the right word, a lot of the supply chain problems that existed that really came to the fore in the last year where it's been very difficult to get all kinds of things from clothes to cars to technology that's been a big impact and then consumers turned to digital as their entree into retail during the pandemic and while some traffic has definitely returned to stores i think as predicted we have not gone anywhere back to the pre-pandemic levels of store traffic versus online traffic. Online is still very elevated over what we saw before the pandemic, even though it's come back just a little bit. So given all of that, and given the traffic still remaining online for most retail sectors, at least that traffic flow, not in its entirety, but I know the last time we talked, we talked a little bit about how multiple different types of stores were adjusting to the early days of the pandemic. Specifically, I know we talked about dollar stores quite a bit on that episode regarding leveraging their brick and mortar footprint. But in the two years since, because we're starting to see traffic a little bit come back to brick and mortar, how have we seen the importance of brick and mortar presences in retail shift, even outside of maybe general merchandise or dollar stores? Yeah, you know, Omnichannel played a huge role in helping retailers to weather the pandemic. Being able to tap into store inventory was a huge help for all those online orders coming in. And I think that continues to be the case where that brick and mortar footprint serves many more purposes than a place where a consumer walks through the door and buys goods that they didn't already research online. (laughs) So it's really become much more integrated into 
kind of the overall customer experience and part of the supply chain now, whereas historically stores have not been part of the supply chain. They've been the endpoint of the supply chain. So that idea of putting inventory as close to the customer as I can get it and making that convenient to the customer to get the store still is playing a really important role in that respect. One that was challenged by the pandemic, but I think I would say is actually even more important now coming out of the pandemic than it was before. So you mentioned the role stores play in inventory, inventory management. And I know one thing that has been talked quite a bit about, whether it be from Aptos or other analysts out there, is the fact that consumers today request a lot more inventory transparency, almost demanding that stores know where the inventory is at and they can get a real-time sense of which store has which inventory. What are some of the things you've seen in terms of retailers adjusting to this demand, so to speak, from consumers? And how are retailers treating that in-store inventory in terms of that transparency need? Yeah, it's a huge challenge. There's a couple of portions to it, right? There's, first of all, knowing what kind of inventory you have in your stores and being able to know that accurately in terms of what you have available to sell, not just what happens to be under the roof, because you could have inventory that is damaged, but that you haven't damaged out and removed from your inventory. Or you could have inventory in your store that's literally walking around in a customer's hands that they just haven't bought yet. So that inventory accuracy is sort of that first level of challenge. And then there is the transparency aspect of it. How much do you show to consumers? Do you want to show them that you only have one item left in the store or not? On one level, it creates a sense of urgency for the consumer if they really want it and they see there's only one left, then you might actually drive that customer to the store a lot faster than if you had 10. But if you only have one and you're not 100% sure that that's actually available to sell to somebody, then you don't want to risk driving a customer to a store only for the inventory not to be there. So there's lots of different strategies that retailers can employ around inventory visibility. So they could say, I've seen some retailers online say, I have high availability, I have some availability, I have limited availability. Right? Like if it's limited availability and you show up and you can't find it, that's not my fault. I told you that it wasn't really going to be there anyway. So there's lots of things that you can manage, but you have to manage both sides of the equation. You can't just think about, you know, just blasting every last piece of inventory that you have in a store to put it on your online site. And you have to think about the expectations that you're setting with customers when they do show up in the store about how likely that inventory is actually going to be there. You make an interesting point regarding those expectations, regarding managing customer expectations, but I wanted to go back to kind of that first level of maybe problem solving when it comes to inventory, which is knowing exactly how much inventory you have and allowing for whether it's shrink, whether it's inventory in someone's carts. What have retailers done outside of just the customer transparency part in terms of problem solving or coming up with solutions to where they can get a grasp more easily on what inventory they've got in their stores. Yeah, you know, RFID has long been out there as a potential way of solving that particular challenge, but there's always been some kind of challenge around the business case. Some of it is, you know, if you are a retailer who sells other companies' brands, then you've got to get all those companies to consolidate on a particular standard and they have to tag their merchandise or you have to pay that extra labor cost to tag your merchandise. 
And then you have to have the coverage in the store from a reader perspective to make sure that you're getting all of that inventory data and understand what all that inventory data means so that you can interpret that into this is what's available to you customer if you want to come into the store. It's not an easy problem to solve and RFID is probably the one best positioned to solve it, especially when you're talking about either fashion where it's easy to count, you know, multiple things in a pile with RFID much easier than it is for a human to count it. And also even in grocery where you're talking about the physics get in the way of RFID because, you know, putting an RFID tag on a can of peas that is metal and full of liquid kind of makes it very difficult to read that tag. So you've got to come up with other solutions like camera vision and things like that. But I would say that the economics of those business cases, no matter what the technology is, whether it's computer vision or RFID, with the labor market crunch being the way that it is, it is changing those economics significantly. So we do see retailers reevaluating all of those technologies as a way to help offset and automate some of the things that they would have asked a person to do in the past. And as you mentioned, oftentimes it's economics and the bottom line, risk reward, they're all being weighed in as far as retailers' decision making. I wanted to transition to something that you mentioned in the beginning as far as companies increasingly using their brick and mortar stores as fulfillment centers, something we saw from the likes of Target even before the pandemic. It became almost standard issue as we turn the calendar to 2022. What are some of the best practices we've seen from retailers as far as leveraging those locations as fulfillment centers for either online ship to store or buy online pickup in store purchases? Yeah, I would add one more to the list, which is a hot topic, which is returns. Having the store be the location that the consumer actually returns something that they bought online that they don't want. So returns has blown up during the pandemic because we've had so much ordering shift to online. And a lot of times consumers are buying multiples of the same items so they can try it on at home. But the expense of that reverse logistics and that return supply chain is very high. And the sellability of the inventory that comes back to retailers is definitely not 100%. So anything that they can do to take cost and volume out of the returns is a huge benefit to the retailer. So that's one that the store has definitely stepped up and where retailers are really encouraging consumers to use stores in that way. And I would say that I think, you know, I still see a lot of interest in live streaming and using store associates in the store to create content that reaches beyond the four walls of the store. You know, I think that a lot of those more entertainment opportunities are going to start coming back as restrictions lift and as people want to get back out there. I think we see stores stepping up from that perspective. But then the inventory piece of it is huge. The having a larger back of store where you might carry items that are only available for online fulfillment as opposed to things that you actually sell in the front of store are the kinds of things that we see retailers trying to make decisions about how to allocate that inventory and how to allocate for fulfillment only versus thinking about selling it out through the front of the store. One of the things you mentioned is returns and obviously reverse logistics. As you talked about, a huge topic among retailers, especially during the first couple of months of the year, as we see that return flow back to the store 
after the holiday season. We talked about last week even Target opening up returns such that people can do so through those drive-up locations that they've got in front of their stores. What are some other ways in which retailers are making the returns process maybe even easier for customers as it pertains to the stores themselves? Yeah, so they're not forcing consumers to walk all the way to the back of the store to return something. They're putting a lot of those return stations now closer to the front door so that you can just kind of duck in. What Target did is a bit of a bold move because part of the value in driving a consumer to the store is the idea that you have the opportunity to sell them something else. So if they just sit in their car in the parking lot and manage that return, that kind of cuts off that potential recovery. But I do think retailers have to balance the convenience nature of the return and how much the consumer appreciates that as a way to build long-term loyalty versus that short-term well, I'm, no matter what, I'm going to get them in the store and I'm going to get them to the back of the store so they have to walk through the whole store and I maximize my opportunity to sell to them as they're walking out the door. I think some of the incentives that retailers are putting in place, I've seen where they give you credit basically the minute that they take possession, whereas if you had gone to a post office and dropped a package in the mail, you wouldn't get credit until it was received at the warehouse and checked in there. So shortening the amount of time before the consumer gets their money back for a return is one way that they're trying to incentivize the consumer to use that model where just all of the costs associated with the return are so much less than just returning it straight to the warehouse through the shipping means. And it also seems like retailers more and more concerned about the lifetime value of the customer than making sure, say, they buy a candy bar on their way outside the store after the return. I wanted to ask you a bit about agility because I know something that retailers have often talked about pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, what have you, is that retail is a constantly shifting medium. It is something that is constantly adjusting, but we saw it seemed like week-to-week adjustments during the course of the last couple of years. And I know something Aptos talks a lot about is the importance of retail agility. How are retailers kind of attaining or reaching this agility point to where changes can be made rapidly without massive capex and and what have they kind of learned from the last couple of years as far as agility is concerned there's been a lot of emphasis on the technology that supports the capabilities that retailers deploy and i think one of the things that's changed a lot has been retailers attitude about how closely technology capabilities need to match, you know, whatever unique business process that the retailer has come up with. The idea that, you know, every company thinks that they're special and unique, but I think retail is is special even in that spectrum of thinking that they are special and unique. And, you know, in the past, we've seen retailers be willing to make lots of investment in customization and custom integration all to support what they felt like was hugely differentiating just in terms of a business process. And that attitude has changed a lot. So there's a lot more interest in being able to rapidly upgrade and access new innovation on a much more frequent basis than all that kind of tech debt was dragging them down and dragging down their ability to access new innovation just because they'd customized their solutions so much that it locked them out of or it made the upgrades super expensive. So that attitude change is really important. The way that the customer taps their card on your payment screen 
is not a differentiator. <laughs> it just really is not. The service that you provide to that customer when they walk through the door and the fact that you have your special inventory in stock, that's differentiating. And investing in the right places to support that kind of differentiation, that's an important attitude change among retailers as they're looking to build agility. You talk about service, you talk about differentiation, and that leads exactly into my next question because I know the last time we had you on the show, we talked a little bit about brick and mortar stores certainly serving in other capacities to customers. We've talked about returns to this point. We've talked about fulfillment. But what are some areas in which we're seeing maybe a diversification in terms of retailers using their brick and mortar stores to provide services to customers that maybe their competitors aren't? Oh, for sure. If you look at most stores today, even though, you know, it may be chained off right now and not used very much, you know, we were definitely headed in a direction where the store was an experience center. I think about like REI and Dick's Sporting Goods as an example that put in climbing walls where that was part of the, you know, you got to get shoes for your kid for school or for sports. They want to go to the place where they can also climb a climbing wall all of those kinds of things that drive consumers to stores, the things that you can't get just from shopping online, I think those will continue to be important and an important supplement to the part of the shopping experience where they're selecting and purchasing goods. So, you know, a retailer who just thinks of their store as the place where the purchase happens is leaving a lot of value on the table. And some of our customers will talk about that the lifetime value of a customer that they've acquired and supported in a store, they can be an omni-channel shopper. They don't have to be just a store shopper, but a customer who comes to a store has a higher lifetime value than a customer who only shops online or primarily shops with them online. So I do see retailers still looking for those experiences to be available in their stores and to make that a part of a shopping experience that keeps customers coming back. So as we bring our conversation to a close here, I'm going to ask you to reach in your desk drawer, uh, pull out your crystal ball, and take a look at it. If we were to talk to you maybe two years from now, what are some areas regarding retail, regarding brick and mortar, what are some areas of focus that we might have two years from now, or what might we be talking about most two years from now? Yeah, that's it's a good question. I mean, I'll tell you what I'm thinking about around the next two years, which is this tendency. So people talk a lot about the split in retail between highly convenient shopping experiences. So think, you know, Amazon Go, right? Like you don't interact with a human. You don't even have to scan anything. You just pick things up, put it in a bag and walk out of the store. And then at the other end, you have these super experiential kinds of experiences where you're assisted by a, a store associate and there's all kinds of effort that the retailer is putting into knowing who you are and providing, you know, art and curation and person-driven experiences. And people talk about it like these are two completely separate directions that retail could go in. And one of the things that we're thinking about and looking at is, well, what if both of those things are true? And what if a consumer wants both of those things from the same retailer and sometimes even in the same experience? So the challenge for retail in that kind of environment is you have to understand your consumers 
even better than ever because you need to know their intent and what they expect from you literally from category to category or shopping trip to shopping trip to have a better handle on what are the things that I need to put in front of them to assist them in the shopping experience. Sometimes I'm putting frictionless and commerce driven things. And sometimes I'm putting personalization and employee driven things in front of them, but I have to know them well enough or be open and flexible enough that when they tell me which kind of experience they want, I can provide it for them. That's a very complex retail environment, but you know, more and more when you look at what consumers want, they want it all. So it's not an either or kind of question that we have to figure out how to answer. I love that insight and I'm looking forward to see how retailers can combine, say, an REI with a Walmart in terms of their approach Exactly. <laughs> over the next couple of years. Well, Nikki, we thank you for the time for joining us here today. It's always great to have you on the show and we appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for having me. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we thank Nikki for joining us. It's always fantastic to have her join the podcast, and we've enjoyed our conversations with her in the past enjoyed this one as well. Now, in our Looking Ahead segment this week, we're discussing specialty retailer REI. Now, of course, REI, technically a co-op, and so members of the co-op get member information. They get that member dividend at the end of the year. They get special coupons and offers. But REI's made a big push this year, a big marketing push towards members regarding not just their rewards for the course of the year, but an augmentation to the membership system at REI. And Leighton and I, both members at REI, we've both gotten a couple of communications about this just over the last couple of weeks. And I think it's interesting because a lot of these things are tied into stuff that we've talked about businesses and retailers doing over the last little while. For example, free shipping for members with no minimum order required. There are some restrictions there. And there's a member-only collection that they are rolling out for REI products. But I think the most intriguing thing that I got from some of their newer platforms is the REI, what they're calling the resupply, or basically used gear. So if you're an REI member, you can trade in used gear, and then REI will sell that used gear. And this is not something that we've seen unique to the retail landscape. We've seen, of course, partnerships by a number of retailers, one of which being Macy's with the brand ThreadUp, whose goal it is to do a very similar thing as what REI is attempting to do here. But with REI, what I think is different or perhaps unique is that price isn't necessarily the proposition here. And I think if you look at the REI customers that are out there, some of them might be price conscious, but generally speaking, you have customers who are more concerned with the economic footprint of their products, more concerned with eco-friendly products. And so while REI products are sold at a bit of a discount, now in many cases not that much of a discount in terms of some of the gear that's out there, I think the main pull for members is to be able to reuse these products and get more out of the products. And in fact, if you go to 
the resupply page on REI's website. They say right up front, nature doesn't waste a thing. We can do the same. And it's asking customers to reimagine the life cycle of their outdoor gear. I think this is a win-win proposition for REI because again, you know, obviously they can drive traffic to this additional site. They can drive traffic to their membership program, which again, that is somewhat of a moneymaker for REI as a whole. But more importantly, this looks great from those consumers' perspectives that we talk about so often on the show. We talk about kind of what defines the consumer in 2022. And more than anything, of course, price is the number one determination regarding a consumer's purchase decisions. But many people list eco-friendliness among the top. REI has done a great job of kind of curating an atmosphere around their membership, around their retail store, in terms of having a light environmental footprint. This is just a great move for REI, not only in terms of marketing, not only in terms of PR, but it's a win-win for them because they can kind of convey to their customers, hey, we care about this stuff, but also you can get a better deal on it. I don't know, and what remains to be seen, and I guess we'll find out at next year's member meeting, and this is the reason I'm looking ahead to it, is how much these type of sales will actually take away from REI's existing sales. For example, if you're on the REI website, if you're a member, you might say, well, I can go to the outlet store or I can go to the used gear tab and see if I can get this Columbia jacket or get this particular pair of running shorts for cheaper, lightly used by someone. I think that might happen in a few circumstances, but overall, I think smart move for REI in the year ahead. And I guess we'll see the success by whether or not the program continues. And like I mentioned, they do have their yearly member meetings to talk about their finances. And so something that we'll certainly pay attention to next year in 2023 when they do that for 2022. But also, I wouldn't be surprised to see an increasing number of retailers kind of leveraging this as people become more conscious about their environmental impact and about the potential negative impact for fast fashion that some of their choices could have. Well, that'll do it for our podcast today. Big thanks once again to Leighton Behind the Scenes and Nikki Baird for joining us. Also, thank you to Hashtag Paid for partnering with us for this episode. Coming up next week, we'll be joined by Tal Rotman, the VP of Alliances and Partnerships at Nomogu. He'll talk a little bit about something that doesn't get talked about enough in retail, and that's customer hijacking. Sometimes it's done with nefarious purposes, sometimes not. But if you haven't heard about customer hijacking, it makes a big financial impact for retailers. For many retailers, it can result in ads for other retailers popping up on their own websites. So we'll talk next week about how that works and how companies can prevent it going forward. Like I said, big time retail topic that not enough people are talking about in this day and age. Well, that'll do it for us. We thank you for listening and we'll be back with you seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.